I like that. I think what comes to mind to me, in at least in my experience of, I was raised Methodist. My dad was Catholic too. So like, but anyway, it, we were basically raised Methodist. But it always felt like religious discourse was like bowling with the bumpers. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no way that you're going to get into a taboo area. There's no way to go off the rails. It was like, all is accepted as long as it's, you know, <laughs> we're talking about Jesus, so it's all good, you know? And it's just like, no one questioned anything. No one, you know. Right. I mean, and then, you know, the reason kind of that I brought this up is that that, I feel like, has a pretty direct translation into people's normative social behavior where mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot more just... <laughs> Everybody wasn't nice all the time. <laughs> there, mm. We were in the South, so plenty of people were nice all the time. But there were plenty of folks that that kind of uh, argumentative irascibility that I think often gets stereotyped as loud, boisterous, arguing Jewish families. Like, there's a reason that's a stereotype. There's, a, there's plenty of that, right? Both in terms of individual family units and in bigger social groups. Mm. Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Revelation Project podcast. Today I'm with two very special gentlemen. I have already had the honor of speaking with them on their podcast called The Apricot Jam. Today I'm with Lucas Wolf, who's an acupuncturist, herbalist, and martial artist in Brooklyn, New York. His days can pretty much be summed up as Punch, kick, heal, rinse, repeat. I love that, Lucas. (laughs) I am also with Taryn Rosenthal. Taryn is a dad, a classical Chinese medicine practitioner, a lifelong mover, and co-host of the Apricot Jam podcast. He is endlessly curious and immensely grateful to be kin to all beings. Welcome, you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Monica. It's great to be here. I can so relate to that. Mm. Has it always been that way for you, Taryn? As long as I can remember, which is pretty far back. So I'm going to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> and was it and was it always encouraged and never shut down? Oh, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, but I would certainly credit my parents for supporting it probably more often than was comfortable. Yeah. Even if maybe not all the time. I love I love that. So I give them a lot of props for that. Yeah, it's true, right? The whole comfort, discomfort, especially as a parent. Yeah. When you have a super curious kid, it's like, do we really need to talk about that right now? Yeah. Yeah. And and be honest about it. Right. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's not very convenient to have a super curious child. No, it certainly isn't. And you know, there's like often with kids. I'm like thinking of my own daughter who's 11 and is very bright and very curious. And sometimes she'll use that as a way more of getting boundary feedback than actually about engaging curiosity. And so like, yeah. and I think that's a totally valid inquiry too. But at the same time, there's a, a much harder limit for me with boundary inquiry where I'm like, okay, we've talked about it for like 20 minutes. It doesn't go anywhere else. Now we're just like in this weird merry-go-round, but it's not very merry, even though it keeps going around. Um, So, you know, like parsing, and I certainly am not always right about my feeling or assessment of where, you know, where we're kind of like pushing that edge. So I think my parents had a, a little bit of a lower threshold <laughs> maybe than, than the one that I currently have with my own kit for that question mm. of curiosity slash, you know, boundary inquiry. And I'm sure that there's a lot of other dynamics and dimensions to it, but definitely at the moment, those things feel a little bit like a yin yang, you know, uh, reciprocal tension dynamic with my kid. I get it. I so get it. I I was that curious kid too. And uh, I have to say that, yeah, it, it definitely had its, its moments, you know, where I too, you know, had 
endless curiosity and just got the sense from most adults around me that there was a limit to how much they were going to humor me, encourage me. And really, it's just fascinating, right? Trying to look at all of the ways that you want to do it differently with your own kids. And, you know, what you said about boundaries is so great and so important because otherwise I find that it's like, I'm like, are are we now hostage negotiating? Like, what what are we doing here, right? Right. How about you, Lucas? What what about you when it comes to curiosity? Because you guys are are Mm -hmm. obviously, you know, like this is part of what, you guys are all about with the podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what my mom would say growing up or anything, but I was definitely uh, more the the quiet one to observe, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I still sort of am that. I like to assess a situation before I necessarily dive right in. My adult life, I've, I've been trying to do that more, you know, where just, just, don't you don't need to know all the specifics about the situation just try it do you know yeah but i was definitely like i remember like my mother really liked going to church and being social afterwards mm-hmm. like that was really the the interest of church i mean sure they were very religious but like we we spent hours in the post church in like the what do you call it? Like the foyer or whatever. And then she would just talk to everyone. And, and, yeah. Like reception. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's totally bringing up memories for me right? actually. Cause I had totally forgotten about that social mm-hmm. aspect after church. It, it was probably only 15 minutes, but it felt like hours. <laughs> and I was always dreaming about what food was going to be part of the social. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's where I went with it. Oh, hundred percent. That it was not until I was like, teens that we got one of those like just someone decided to put on a pot of coffee and make some cakes you know it was just like (gasps) but it totally revolutionized the way we like interacted after church but i remember like i think i learned a lot about like the social niceties and the and the, the play that is our social structure and like how we present ourselves to people do you know because it was such a dichotomy of how people interacted with each other in this arena and then how because i got to see people in more intimate settings than later do you know where like we went on mission trip obviously i see my parents outside of church so like i know how they interact with uh, you know us and the rest mm. of the family so it was just like i i could see that oh this is like an like a play <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is a, you know we there's a reciprocation that needs to, it's like a bouncing a ball back and forth like oh and no one's ever sort of abrasive in this interaction. It's so like you toss the ball of happiness back to to you and you toss it back to me. And, oh, isn't this jolly? And you know what I mean? And it was like, I don't know. It was just interesting. And that's, I don't know if that's a very Pennsylvania thing. Oh, no. <laughs> I joke that PA stands for passive aggression because it, it just seemed like such a microcosm at the time. It's like, it's like Pleasantville, you know, kind of, 100%. did you ever... Right, where where it's just everything is just so pleasant. Yeah, you know where. It's exactly. I love that you brought that up, Lucas. Yeah, (laughs) it's fascinating, right? Because I grew up in a pretty, in a traditional Jewish household, and that is not the way that works. (laughs) Tell me more. That sounds so refreshing to me. It's probably why I really appreciate that now. You know, there's always strengths and and challenges, right? But so Judaism is a very. is a faith and a culture that puts a lot of importance on argumentation and debate and, Mm. you know, study is often, and here we go, actually thinking about curiosity. So I, I certainly, you know, grew up within a religious space where, you know, while there were limits to what it was acceptable to ask, there's a kind of Socratic, nature to studying the Torah and to inquiring about religion. There's this notion, right, from the Torah about, let me make sure that I've got my characters right. It's been a minute since I thought about this, but I think uh, Isaac, who became Israel, right, he wrestled with an angel and was injured, right? And so, this idea of wrestling with God and wrestling with these kinds of questions of the nature of reality and divinity and you know, ethics and morals, like it, there, there's a, um, 
I mean, and I think sometimes too combative for my taste, right? There's other modes of inquiry, but I do appreciate the fact that it's not like, it's not settled, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's, you know, certainly there are always going to be places you can find in any religious context where people insist that things are settled, but there's an inherent unsettledness to Judaic discourse, which I think I really appreciate. I like that. I think what comes to mind to me, in at least in my experience of i was raised methodist my dad was catholic too so like but anyway we were basically raised methodist but it always felt like religious discourse was like bowling with the bumpers Mm -hmm. you know there's no way that you're gonna get into a taboo area there's no way to go off the rails it was like all is accepted as long as it's you know (laughs) we're talking about jesus so it's all good you know and it's just like no one questioned anything no one you know right I mean, and then, you know, the reason kind of that I brought this up is that that, I feel like, has a pretty direct translation into people's normative social behavior where mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot more just everybody wasn't nice all the time. <laughs> there, mm. We were in the South, so plenty of people were nice all the time. But there were plenty of folks that that kind of uh, argumentative irascibility that I think often gets stereotyped as loud boisterous arguing Jewish families, like there's a reason that's a stereotype. There's a, there's plenty of that, right? Both in terms of individual family units and in bigger social groups. Mm. So it was an interesting thing to be in Atlanta and like a fairly high Southern level of gentility creating friction with this <laughs> other kind of cultural dynamic, right? And how yes. all that, you know, oil and water did and didn't mix was fascinating. Did everybody end the argument about the Torah with, oh, bless your heart? <laughs> was it just like, that would be, no, but that would have been amazing. And certainly in the movie version, the comedy movie version of my childhood, yes. Can we all have a comedy version oh, of yeah. our childhood, oh, please? Yes. Would that not just be the most oh, cathartic man. thing ever? Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, like, okay, I'm just. I, I know. <laughs> well, well, I encourage that. I think that I think that's the th- therapeutic part mm. of it, right? Mm. Is the dark, the dark, true, paradoxical, crazy-making humor of it all. Mm-hmm. Totally. Most of the successful comedy writers, and maybe not like maybe even sort of dark comedy kind of things, end up being able to do that mm-hmm. like that's their blessing their their calling in in life is to be able to pull from their childhood and just be like this was ridiculous but it's probably something that happened to most people and here you go mean girls yeah i mean it was a slice of most people's lives but it just was so resonant and so true and like you know we all it was so successful like there's a new series called Pen 15 i don't know if you saw that it's really weird. It's great. It's weird. It's twisted. Mainly because the two writers are these these two adult women who are in their in their thirties, and they're playing like fourteen year old girls, and they're playing with fourteen year old actors. It's hilarious, and they're like, you know, I have crushes and things. It's super awkward. They're going through puberty. It's like it's so raw and real. That's what makes it so uncomfortable to watch. Yes. But at the same time, it's so enjoyable and kind of addictive. And also, you just, you can't help She's definitely at least 30. Like, that's <laughs> Cognitive dissonance at its oh, finest. I love it. But if, if only we all got the chance to be able to do something like that, just really get it out, I think it would be great. Well, plus, I think my father was like the king of the one-liners. And he used to say things like, Monica, you know, pain builds character for more pain, right? Or just, you know, that way that, and, you know, people have been like, you're really funny. And I'm like, thanks, it's the trauma. You know, like, there's (laughs) just a way that sometimes that develops us in such a way that it's useful. It's... I don't know, you know, it's this weird disguised gift Mm. to have had, you know, because even Lucas, how you were explaining how surface level, how Pleasantville, right, your upbringing was, there's also that element for you that was like, oh, hey, wait a minute here, you know, that I think there's just a way that as individuals, we 
are always going to bump up against that place like you were describing where it's bowling inside the bumpers and when and where do we dare to bowl outside the bumpers? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm uh, in some ways surprised that more people don't in that in those contexts when they get the chance, like just tear off the bumpers. Do you know what I mean? Once they have their own, once they get to be of age, they leave the house and they they just go bananas. Luckily, it doesn't happen as often as you think. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. My daughter is at university. This is her first year, and we, I think, I think what's both. Well, I'm like, how do I how do I say this inside the bumpers? So let me just stop doing that. So, <laughs> so one of the things that we're experiencing is she's kind of like amazed that so many kids are so free now that they're at college and like and how they're spending or or using that freedom is partying and drinking. And we kind of she was kind of a free range kid. Mm. Uh, so we didn't have a whole lot of rules or restrictions. We were more, you know, I would just really get curious with my kids. Like, hey, do you think that's a good idea? Or help me understand, like, mm-hmm. uh, what's your plan if something goes wrong? Tell me about it, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, talked about a lot of like unintended consequences or unintended impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really trying to encourage them to kind of critically think about things. And then it's like, as long as they had critically thought about it, I was like, well, do whatever you want to do, you know, like whatever's feels good to you, but knowing that they had kind of looked at it from a number of different angles. And I guess I just bring that up because, you know, you'd said like, I wonder why more people, but it's like, there's this way that I think we're enculturated to think, oh, we can party and drink now versus all of the other ways that we could bowl outside the bumpers. I don't know. Taryn, what do you think? I think it's really fascinating that somehow freedom is equated with excess. Oh, yeah. I think it's such an artifact of capitalism, quite frankly, and the commodification of, oh, I don't know, everything. Mm -hmm. So that somehow more means free, right? And And I'm not saying that sometimes more isn't a way to explore and engage freedom. But I I feel like it's what you're pointing to, Monica, like it's such a limited orientation to what we can do if we decide to like even just start to move the bumpers out Mm -hmm. a little bit further. So, you know, we can see what it feels like to have a little more space to investigate Mm -hmm. um, or ask questions or be curious since that's one of the things we're talking about. You know, and I pushed that boundary plenty hard for a lot of reasons in my younger days too. So I'm I'm not unsympathetic to the idea that going into non-ordinary states, which certainly can be one reason to party, though maybe not always entirely congruent or consonant with what's happening at many kinds of parties, but nonetheless, by literally getting out of what I think of as my head, Mm. you know, or the experience that I'm identified with, it affords opportunities to start to see things in a different way, Mm. feel things in a different way, relate in a different way. So like, I, I get it, but I don't know that, I mean, that's certainly a reason that people engage in behaviors like that. I don't know that that's the main reason though. I think, Mm -hmm. The main reason really is like, is some other kind of, I feel like we have been sold this bill of goods, right? On this kind of fundamental enculturated level where, you know, and I'm going to repeat myself, but like, you know, where somehow more is better and more is freer. And in some respects, the more doesn't matter. It can be objects, it can be, substances it can be i mean mostly it's objects or or substances right like that's kind of the thing that we are told is that we we need more things and we need to work harder and faster and more and so there's this like you know crazy uh oscillation between stimulation and sedation Mm -hmm. that we see as like a big part of the swing which is this like 
it's it's like the diurnal cycle decoupled from harmony. Say more. Well, I mean, if you think about, you know, the sun rises and ideally we get up and the sun goes down and we go to sleep, right? That the excitation or stimulation end is, you know, it's not enough for the sun to rise and for us to get up and do our thing. We have to like do it at 11. I don't mean 11 a.m., but like, you know, spinal tap, do it at 11. And then (laughs) similarly, it's like we're going so hard and so fast you know, with information, visuals, caffeine, you know, maybe other things. And then it's like, we have to shut it down. And so we do that also with the support of other kinds of resources. Mm. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say it's bringing up, like, I, I know that something that's really potent and nourishing for you is the mystery of exploring really rich conversation. And when I think about, you know, what you're describing, I think about, okay, so what's missing from us being able to make these deeper connections and have more of these contexts for understanding our lives in a different way. And what comes up for me is what's missing for so many of us is relational skills. Mm-hmm. You know, just saying. I totally hear you. It feels so. I, I used to, en- well, I still do it to a certain extent, but I used to en- engage with older people more often than not because I had an older brother. So, you know, I sort of naturally gravitated towards people who were senior to me to find stimulation. Sometimes, you know, conversation didn't matter. But regardless, so I think I sort of, because of that inclination, ended up being stimulated by potentially more interesting conversations. I didn't have that much of an issue talking to somebody's parents, you know, when I'm when I met a new friend or something like that. Like, that wasn't intimidating to me necessarily. It was like, I can hang with these guys. Like, let's talk about some stuff. And I think that, I think you're right. I think that when you don't know the value of a, an incredibly stimulating conversation, like that, when you're actually, you know, plumbing the depths of, of our understanding of something and you're expanding your, your viewpoint on something, it's ex- incredibly rewarding. It's an endorphinergic, you know, it's, and so when you don't have that experience and you go and you experiencing freedom, you're looking for dopamine somewhere else, <laughs> you know? So drinking mm-hmm. and, you know, that excitation rather than like, wow, you know, stillness can be really awesome. Like, I mean, my path was a little funnier. I mean, I, like I grew up in the, in the boondock. So like we didn't have a lot of stimulation, let's say. So we ended up sitting around smoking cigarettes. Do you know what I mean? So like <laughs> we, which led to really great conversations because we were just worried about stillness and we were in nature and things like that. So, which is really wonderful, but maybe not the most normal situation. Yeah, I I wasn't, I think because of that, I wasn't really interested in like, like drugs didn't seem really interesting to me necessarily at the time. And I didn't really drink that much, you know, even when I Mm -hmm. went to college, you know, all my friends are like, just going to this party, that party. I'm like, I wanted. I found a little group of friends, and we had really cool conversations. It was like, it's really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting because I, I, I too was not a big drinker, but I had also experienced like a massive loss. My dad had passed when I was like twenty, mm. and I think it just it talk about a sobering experience. I really, I think that at that age, and I can relate to what you were saying too about craving sometimes that elder wisdom. Mm-hmm. you know, of parents and, and even any elders, because I think my experience felt so grown up. So like, I, I didn't have, I think that, and maybe I'm making an equating, you know, that kind of party and drinking, like I, I didn't necessarily I felt like after I'd done that a couple of times, I was like, been there, done that. Mm. I, I, I think too, maybe I'm just built to plunge <laughs> the depths. <laughs> maybe, I don't know, you know, I, I brag, right? Like I, I can own that as a, as a beautiful thing, you know, as a, mm-hmm. as a beautiful skill. What about you, Taryn? 
What about me in this case? In what way? Where, 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 where are we inquiring? Relationally? Relationally, relational skills. And how, how was your kind of upbringing and going off to school? And yeah, so I like, you know, I'm sure many folks that are listening, I had a pretty challenging family of origin. I mean, my parents were wonderful, but not not very well in themselves. And so mm. relationally, mostly it was like a question of how to survive in an incredibly chaotic and unpredictable and um, not physically violent, but emotionally and psychologically violent environment. So I was, I was pretty good at surviving, but I was not particularly good at uh, harmoniously navigating social contexts because I was on such high alert all the time that I would default to some modes of interaction that were way more combative than I think is necessary, warranted, or desirable for most people. So I had to really like come through enough of the the feedback in my system right? To kind of like cultivate enough capacity to see it as feedback mm-hmm. on my own consciousness and mm-hmm. recognize that I wasn't really relating to reality in any kind of consensual way and that I needed to do something about it. And then the doing something about it, what's today? <laughs> um, <laughs> took a long time, right? It took a long time and, and a lot of work. And I would certainly say not so much on the outside at this point, but there's still plenty of internal work in progress on that front. So, you know, learning more about how to navigate those social circumstances, right? Like lots of time in the service industry and working as a bartender and, you know, managing large catered events and restaurants and things like this, that was certainly like a pretty robust school of hard knocks and that working in a variety of spiritual contexts and helping facilitate ceremony. Also a great opportunity to get feedback on what really wasn't working. (laughs) So, I mean, I think that I'm one of those people historically who would have liked to have been a quicker study than I probably was when it came to such things, but it really took just an inordinate amount of getting my ass handed to me to Mm -hmm. like put two and two together and get four. But at the same time, I mean, you know, it's like, I think if you're someone who's interested in being within the helping professions or within a space of helping people learn how to heal themselves, having a pretty rocky road often ends up being an asset in the long view, even if Mm -hmm. as we go from, there to hear, you know, and maybe it's on the the high end of the more circuitous paths one could take uh, to not being a schmuck most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And when did you know that you wanted to do that, that you wanted to facilitate that for others and help others? So pretty early, actually what form it was going to take has had a lot of iterations. But like the thing about families from my point of view is that no matter what your family looks like, it's what the world is. You don't, when you're young enough, you don't really have any way of knowing that there might be another way of being other than the way that your family is. But at a, at a pretty young age, it occurred to me after one, you know, of the more intense, disruptive moments in our family that even if that's the way the world was, that wasn't okay. And I needed to get on Mm. a road to somehow finding a different world, changing myself so that I related to the world differently, um, helping other people, right? It wasn't like a fully formed idea at that point because I was quite young, but the lodestar of like, okay, there's a more harmonious way that's available somehow, even if you don't know how to imagine it yet. And you need to really start to orient yourself to a road of discovery and inquiry that will help you develop an imaginary where those things are possible. And then maybe you can learn how to be them and live them. You know, so that was 
I was probably still in the single digits when I had that epiphany. I think probably eight. That doesn't, of course, mean that any kind of skillful navigation was happening at that point. But it, it just dawned on me that there was some kind of inquiry and work to do. And I better get on it because it was probably going to take a while. Yeah. Like, there's got to be another way. Yeah. Right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. And fortunately, there are, there are lots of other ways. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like those experiences, not necessarily, well, including the child, early childhood stuff, you know, you're, it creates a, a polarity from homeostasis. So it, it, it makes you want to, the potential for discovery of something different yeah. is there, right? Maybe this is a great segue. I would love, love, love for both of you to say a little bit more about your work in the world. Mm. Uh, I love so much that Taryn, you are a, now are you a doctor of Chinese medicine? Like how do you describe your work? Uh, I am not a doctor. I have a, this gets into like a whole thing about the different <laughs> kinds of licensure. Well, the licensure is pretty simple, but there's a bunch of weird degrees for Chinese medicine. Suffice it to say that what I have is essentially a master's degree in Chinese medicine, but in my case, it's specifically focused on acupuncture. So you can also have one of those master's level degrees that includes herbs. Mm -hmm. I went to a graduate program that focused entirely on acupuncture and a little bit of Twena, which is also something that I do a lot of, which is sometimes talked about as Chinese medical massage. I think my favorite description of it is Chinese cranial osteopathy, because um, I think Ooh. that gets a little more at the way that Twena is. I mean, there are techniques that are kind of massage but it's really more a matter of using the Chinese medical paradigm as a lens through which to look at a patient at the environment at reality and then using the hands, right? Like acupuncture, we use the needle as the primary modal interface for inviting the possibility of change. And with Twena, the hand, um, though the hand is an expression of the entire body, but it's, it is, it's manual medicine, right? Like quite literally I'm using my hands to invite change in the system. And those are the two primary ways that I interface with patients but there's a bunch of other modalities. And, you know, I think what's more important than the modality is the way that we're understanding the universe to work, right? And that understanding of the universe, which for Lucas and I comes out of what we would call a classical orientation. So these, this set of two texts that are called the Neijing, which is the, the inner classic, has a particular cosmological frame that it works within. And then from that understanding of cosmology, things kind of get resonantly downshifted into terrestrial manifestations. And then we look at the way that the cosmological and the terrestrial interact. And largely we look at that through, you know, what often is called the Qijiao, which is basically the place where people live. And by people in this case, I mean all all the peoples, all the persons, right? Animate and inanimate. Um, because all of those relations and contexts are unfolding and at play. And then we focus, at least in, you know, for both Lucas and I, we focus on working with the human people part of that equation. But those human people are still in this really beautifully complex, broader relational context, which is super important in this medicine. And depending on how you orient, you might focus more on, you know, the seasonal cycles or food or herbs, which are really kind of the same thing, just on a continuum, or you might focus on the unseen. But ideally, what I would say is that we really try to um, develop that understanding of the possibility space and work with whatever aspect is going to be most useful for the person who's come seeking support, you know, and we're really there uh, to be of service to that process and to recognize that we are midwives, custodians, 
sometimes maybe guides, but we're not, you know, we're not healers. We're not the one that are, that's doing the healing. There's an inherent understanding in any living system of how to self-organize and express coherence. And we call that health or thriving in a human organism and in many other living systems. And so from my point of view, my role as a physician, and I use that term very broadly, right? Not as a Western medical physician, but as someone who works with the well-being of an individual, my role is to help that innate wisdom in their system express because in some way it's not able to fully express or they wouldn't be in my office, right? They're coming because there's something, I mean, every new patient I've ever seen is coming because something is wrong. Mm. This is in quotes, wrong, and it needs to be fixed. And generally because a bunch of other opportunities uh, have not successfully helped them navigate the fixing it. Mm -hmm. Now, I wouldn't pathologize it. I don't think that people show up with things that are wrong. I do think people show up with pain, which I totally am sympathetic to why that seems problematic. But really, what's happening from my point of view is that their being is communicating what it has been and is learning. And that if we can be present enough with the communication, with the story that is being told from all of the different aspects of that being verbal, nonverbal, uh, you know, things that we discover through palpation <clears throat> and observation that we can then offer back to the system based on what it's saying it needs a message or a story that will help it take the next step in coming back into coherence and being able to express that innate wisdom faculty so that it comes back into a more harmonious resonance and expresses its health and thriving. I love the way you say that, Taryn, because you always have this way of, first of all, beautiful words, and I don't have to add anything to that if, if I don't want to, <laughs> but you always have a respect for the adaptation. And I, I really appreciate that because the more I dive into this, the more I'm in the clinic, the more I'm practicing, the more I'm seeing like Maybe I do identify that there's this pattern over here, there's a, there's a stagnation over here, there's a problem here causing pain, and then there's a, an, adapt, an adaptive pattern causing blockage and stagnation here, which is causing pain. But this is the body's adaptation to whatever influences that they may understand and they may have reported to me, but they may not. They may not know why, that, why they've gotten to that point. And the body's in, inherent intelligence has decided that this is the way that we have to maintain in order to function. And so, to just release it all may seem like textbook, that sounds good, like a good idea. But if I do that, I may unearth a lot of things they're not ready to face. I may cause disruption in the body. I may cause basically like chopping the legs off the scaffolding. So, the, the support system for function is now gone. So, I actually may do them harm. Mm -hmm. So, having respect for the adaptation governed by the uh, body's inherent intelligence is really important. And, and I, I don't think a lot of practitioners see it like that. And maybe luckily they don't get into a lot of trouble because they don't treat it all at once. Or if they do, maybe their patients adapt well. I don't know. But the more I practice, the more I'm like, that is really important. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's not unlike, you know, somebody has an incredible trauma physical or, or emotional trauma in their life and you just go right to the core and have them like face it and like visualize it and like be in that space like right now you're like uh, it like just happened i don't i can't do that or even if it's 20 years ago it doesn't matter you know maybe they're not ready to just peel off like pull out the stitches <laughs> you know like you have to come at it and this is why i appreciate a lot of the way taryn practices you have to communicate on a different level with your patients and suss out, maybe even cre that create the, within the clinical space, space, which is a space between patient and practitioner, within that space, find where you're allowed to go, where you're invited to go. Mm. And then when you enter into that space, okay, let's navigate what's okay. 
Right. And track too, right? Like while you're there. So maybe there is, it feels like there's an invitation. It feels like there's a welcome and you enter in and then like you start to see a level of reactivity in the system. Mm -hmm. And it's important then like to be in this collaborative and co-creative relationship because I feel like while there's lots of things we can know to a degree that from my orientation, fundamentally, we live in a very mysterious universe. And even the things that we think that we can know aren't really the way that we think we know them. And so it's important to really, if you want to practice, I mean, probably anything, but certainly if you want to practice medicine, study is super important. And, you know, compared to our colleagues who are scholars, like, I don't even rank with where that goes because we have some pretty amazingly brilliant and uh, well-developed scholastic colleagues. However, still daily study in a variety of ways, both in terms of intellectual and cognitive information, and also what I feel like is even more important is study of this thing that I call a self, right? And Mm. how do these different movements that we've been talking about and patterns and resonance relationships, how do I experience that, right, in this life, in this body? And how do I experience it with enough resolution in my perceptual apparatus that I can actually, even if I don't fully understand what I'm reading in my relationship with someone who's seeking care, I can kind of like have a qualitative understanding. So as I enter into a space where like things start to feel like they're they were really in resonance and then they start to like decouple and decohere that I'm sensitive enough to that that I can use that as information that allows me to I mean maybe just be like okay, we need to just chill out or find how to surf that edge, that wave, that liminal space so that we stay in the range of what the system can actually navigate right? As opposed to trying to push it to do something that we think it ought to do, as Lucas was touching on, because this textbook or that classical text or this brilliant teacher, you know, or the person themselves said, this is what I want. It's like, okay, great. But we also have to be in what's real. And in this case, what I mean by that is staying in relationship. Relational medicine. Exactly. It is fundamentally relational and processual, right? And so we have to Mm -hmm. like get really comfortable being in the uncomfortability of indeterminacy, not just Mm -hmm. uncertainty, but like not knowing and being able to roll with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I love that. And I want to also acknowledge what Lucas did. You have just a beautiful way of describing and articulating. I get so many visuals when both of you speak. And, you know, what it brings up for me is I'm so curious, you know, how does this practice, how does this practice incorporate and integrate with what you're seeing in the Western medical world? And that is I'm sure a whole nother episode. And (laughs) I would just love to orient our listeners a little bit in relation to how the worldview of Chinese medicine would start orienting us if we were to get curious about a different perspective. Well, let me just say that I think a lot of people are seeking a different orientation already, but don't know about Chinese medicine or East Asian medicine. And that is such a problem. <laughs> um, so some of that falls on our shoulders. You know, I think we, as a, a field, could do a little bit more community outreach, I guess. But it does, it is a bit top down, you know, has a lot to do with, man, I mean, the, this. It's hard to talk about that, like what exactly the origin of it is necessarily. And I want to say, are we also being careful to pull inside the bumpers? A little, but um, <laughs> I don't, because I don't want to get into a, a Western bash, mm. you know, because it's not really about that. There's a lot of great things that Western medicine can do, but I think that we're trapped in a mindset. Mm. 
and in a in a Western kind of mindset, and it's very limited, and that's dangerous. One that doesn't that doesn't allow for imagination or doesn't uses statistics more than or over personal experience or subjective uh, information. Worships in the temple of quantitative data. Yeah, and an right? objectivist, materialist orientation. Yeah, to experience in reality. Fair. One of yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Because one of the main things I do in my clinic, in my practice, is when people come with their, you know, folder of uh, Western reports and things, or say they just got a new test of some kind. I. I try to couch it for them try to because i'm i'm their advocate i want every patient that comes to see me to i want to bolster them up and help their self-confidence and so that they feel like they are their primary care physician right Mm -hmm. so they are the ones who have to gather all the information condense it and uh, digest it along with all the information uh, their subjective information and sometimes you know put the results of the tests, the results of what I'm telling them, feel through that space. It does that resonate with what they're experiencing and then make a decision what to utilize. Because it's not my place to say that like, even my assessment is necessarily accurate. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not hearing them right. And that's fine. That's, that's why it's a practice. But I'm also very clear with them about that. Like, do you think I'm hearing you right? Mm. Does that sound right to you? I always say, does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it's possibly a little bit dis- discrediting of my of my clout as a professional because I should be wearing a lab coat and saying this is how it is, you know. But like, that's not me. <laughs> I'm. I realize that I'm in a practice and that this is a lifelong pursuit, and I'm about eight years into practicing, and I I'm like just beginning. You know, I feel like I've made a lot of steps, but at the same time, talk to me after thirty years and see if I feel like you know I have a, a decent handle on this. But yeah, I think that's incredibly important. And I don't know that I'm hoping, and I think I I have experienced a bit more of this, that of Western doctors understanding their place in the whole spectrum of medical modalities, Mm. understanding their limitations, same as me, and seeing what their strengths are and offering that as, you know, an option for them to choose the patient, you know? So if I find that their cholesterol is super high. They have a history of high cholesterol, their family history of high cholesterol, and they fall within the statistics. And the statistics are um, based on this, you know, like it's just giving them all the, all the, all the very important, very specific information about within their framework. I think that's the best you can do from Mm -hmm. their perspective. And then saying like, these are my tools and this is what could happen. And choose it or don't. <laughs> and there are these yeah. other options I've heard that are quite good, blah, 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 you know? Right, right. It's, it's, uh, there's, I think I shared with you both that, you know, my daughter is currently ill with the flu, right? And it, mm-hmm. we were talking earlier too about how we grew up and all of the various distractions and all of the various ways that we're enculturated, health being a big way in the Western world, you know, and, and I often look through this lens of like, where do we give our power away? Mm. Where do mm. we give our agency away? Where do we stop knowing that we are sovereign beings able to, capable of, you know, viewing all aspects of our world through this lens of ecosystem and understanding from my perspective as a parent that there's a time and a place for Western and there's a time and a place for Eastern and knowing that those modalities and energy work and Reiki and like just all of these options available in my wellness, in my thriving tool bag. Anyway, I wanted your permission to read you something that I ended up writing last night as I was sitting with my daughter because as I was with her in her fever state, she was like, mom, will you tell me a story? Mm. 
you know, and I got to tell her stories about my childhood. And then I got to read to her Alice in Wonderland. That was a a book from her grandfather's library. And she's she's 19, you know, so it was like, here we were in this fever. She's so ill. And it's like this opportunity, this disguised gift to really be with her Mm -hmm. in this way. But it also brought up all of these other elements. So without saying more, I'll just read this to you. Sometimes we have to go through transformations that are uncomfortable and challenging. Sometimes we have to stand by while someone we love is going through a transformation that's uncomfortable and challenging. I wonder what the caterpillar thought when she started to consume everything in sight before wrapping herself into the darkness where she started to dissolve, becoming the nutritive soup for who she would become. Perhaps we all have imaginal cells inside of us that know the way, even when we have lost our way. If the body holds the wisdom, then so too does the body's path to healing. Must we always override our body's intelligence? When the body encounters a pathogen, a bacteria, a foreign invader, it rushes to interpret, integrate, and assimilate. We don't always need to wage war on experiences that are foreign to us, do we? We don't have to keep expressing these these encounters as battles or as winning the war against or mounting an attack upon, nor do we have to approach these encounters with fear. What if instead, like the caterpillar, we wrapped ourselves in the darkness and trusted the body to show us its way? What if instead of trying to control the outcome, we instead trusted the process? Perhaps what we would find is that when we lean into the darkness, she's always there to cradle us in her arms or rub our aching head or to tell us a new story. Perhaps there are disguised gifts laying dormant inside of these dark places that, like imaginal cells, offer us a transformation we had never before imagined was possible when we were standing on the other side of it, judging it or fearing it. Perhaps it would be wise for us to consider taking advice from a caterpillar once in a while. But the chapter that I had been reading her was advice from a caterpillar. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. And it, it, it just, thanks for letting me read it because it feels so potent for me right now. And as you are both speaking, it's just really interesting because I know in our, in our episode on your podcast, we were kind of talking about this dark night of the soul. And there's such a way that I think our wellness is that indicator, is that the telemetry of the body that tells us, you know, like, I can't do this this way anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that seeks kind of like you at age eight, right? There's got to be another way. Right. And just really looking for those people that might be able to offer another way, another perspective. And that there's so many, like you said, that there's so many ways that I think we have yet to discover. But there's, I don't know, again, I think there's so many themes here. We keep talking about, you know, bowling inside the bumpers. Mm -hmm. And I think we're so at this shift. And there's so much that started making sense to me in such a deeper way when I started to experience what acupuncture, Chinese medicine, those different perspectives had to offer me. There was so much nourishment and healing that came even from seeing a different Mm -hmm. perspective and Mm -hmm. understanding um, how Chinese medicine orients. And, And I know there's different types, right? But it's such a powerful modality for understanding so much so many things Mm -hmm. yeah and you know the one of the things well let me take it back at least one maybe two steps so first i i love that piece of writing Mm -hmm. that you shared with us and since we don't have video maybe on, on this recording and i don't know if you can hear it in my voice but like i was totally tearing up because it was just speaking to me on so many levels and bringing together so many of these threads, right? That Mm -hmm. we've had in this conversation and our prior conversation and in some email exchanges. So like, it's, it's really, it's always wonderful when something arises like out of the, you know, the mysterious soup and somehow like 
seems to have all of it, like all of the all, all of the different elements of the super threads of the tapestry mm. that are most available, like somehow are for me are evoked, if not named by what you just read. So thank you for that. And I, th- you know, I think one of the things that continually moves me and kind of blows my mind and opens my heart about the practice of Chinese medicine, at least as I understand it, right, is that I, I had this opportunity to work with all these different kinds of folks from all these different walks of life, some of whom would be considered, you know, folks that didn't need the bumpers or want the bumpers on their lane for their bowling game, and some who have really clearly delineated bumpers and aren't interested in even discussing the fact that there are bumpers there and everything in between. But more often than not, irrespective of where somebody is within that framework, they come in and most people, thankfully, get better and seem to have this kind of understanding for what we're doing. And at some point, say something like, wow, this just makes so much sense. And my response to that mostly, you know, some variation of this particular theme is like, yeah, you know, people often think of Chinese medicine as being something esoteric or occult. Mm -hmm. But really, if you've ever observed the cycle of seasons in the natural world, you already innately and inherently know Chinese medicine, because that's really what we're talking about, right? We're just talking about these natural rhythms. And if we can understand what they look like when they're in harmony, then maybe we understand how to communicate that to the system when it's not expressing harmony so that it can remember how to do that. Mm-hmm. And it it can be, we can talk about it with more complex language and it's certainly like treating various kinds of situations. Some are extremely challenging, but I feel like at the heart for me, it is literally that simple. You know, the universe has a fundamental tendency to breathe and that breath motion looks like a lot of different things at a lot of different levels, but mostly it looks like the cycle of the seasons expressed out through all of these different, you know, aspects of personhood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lucas, anything you want to add? No, I just thought I hope that more people inquire into that space. You know, to your question about, you know, Western medicine, I think we're the... Because Western medicine is, is separated from that, it's, it doesn't work on any level relating to that, I think will inherently come up against a lot of issues. You will have as uh, violent negative reactions as you'll have positive reactions because it's not respecting that space. And that's not to say that, you know, if within our modality, if you treat <laughs> in opposition to the natural order, you're not going to have just as violent reactions too. But I just think that the more we can get back to understanding our relationship with natural cycles, the better. And that touches back to giving people agency. It also um, helps put in perspective how everyone's life feels so crazy right now. Mm-hmm. You know, if we just simply observe that amazing natural phenomenon that immediately grounds us and connects us with that, takes us out of our heads, puts us back into a resonance with the earth and starts to heal us already. Like, so maybe your headache goes away. (laughs) Maybe your anxiety just goes away. Do you know? So a lot of the things that people are feeling that, that have to do with, you know, being stuck in your uh, head space, really, that, all that stuff starts to go away pretty naturally. And the more you sync with that, the more those things fade away. So you don't necessarily even need medical intervention, <laughs> you know? Right, right. We're, and, and that's where I come back to that word that you both used, which is coherence, right? It's like that place where we are you know, vibrating in harmony with that which is supporting and surrounding. And this is right at the moment I lost internet connectivity and was unable to 
finish the show, dear listeners. So sorry about that. And although I didn't get a chance to formally thank Lucas and Taryn, I just wanted to offer my thanks, my deep, deep thanks and gratitude for this epic conversation. I found it to be all the things entertaining and insightful and revealing and heart expanding. I just, I loved speaking to both of you. And for our listeners, we'll make sure to put links in the show notes so that you can follow up and be sure to listen to their podcast, which is called Apricot Jam. And until next time, more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.